This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Ethical Considerations in Organ Donation by Dr. Joseph Brierley. Hello, my name is Joe Brierley. I'm a consultant in the Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care at Great Ormond Street in London. I'm going to talk to you today in this video conference about uh, a topic in ethics, looking at organ donation in children. There are lots of to discuss about the ethics of organ donation from children, but I would argue, particularly from my own country, uh, the major ethical issue is that three people in the UK die every day who would survive with a transplant. So uh, not all of them are children, but some of them are. Introduction. Um, on our paediatric ICUs in the UK, we have a fairly standardised set of guidelines about what PICU is for. Um, National Service Frameworks for Children and PICS guidelines, that's the Paediatric Intensive Care Society. And they tell us that children who can get better are largely the ones who should come into the ICU. The ethical decisions on the ICU are often about who can get better, but certainly withdrawal and limitation of care are major features for any intensive care around the world. And there are lots of decisions about who should best decide that, when you should stop intensive care on a child who isn't going to be able to get better. Should it be the doctors that decide that? If it isn't the doctors, is it fair to make them carry on looking after children that they think can't get better? Should it be the parents entirely? Uh, they know the child best, they're normally the people who have the proxy decision-making capacity. Probably more and more it's the ICU team who decide when things can't get better, but occasionally there are difficulties in terms of conflict, and that may involve different bodies trying to improve that, and ultimately the courts may decide. Certainly our Royal College in the UK have produced a very helpful document which has now gone through a couple of iterations to help look at the circumstances in which withholding or withdrawing of life-sustaining treatment may be considered, not necessarily in the ICU, but certainly in the ICU, this is a very helpful document and set of standards. What I've done, I've highlighted in red the situations in which it could be considered that organ donation might occur from children. Brain death is an obvious one. The permanent vegetative state, no chance, situation, no purpose, and unbearable. The specifics of that aren't as important as the facts. We'll go through the information, look at the methods of organ donation in children, and that will start to make more sense. So around Europe, we have a difficulty in the donation rates in different countries and the availability of organs varies hugely between different countries. And you can see the data here from 2007, the UK, my country, were kind of the middle of the second division of ability to do this. So Spain, uh, often held as the best country in the world at turning organ donation from people who are dying into a real active entity that can save more lives than anywhere else. But I think it's a mistake, I do get in trouble for this, to just look at the numbers here which are number of donors per million population. We also need to look at the other side of the equation, which is the road death rates per million population. And you can see that actually, looking at road traffic safety, that the UK has probably one of the safest set of roads in the country. And I think that's important to remember that most children, as in most adults that donate organs, are people who've suffered from a traumatic brain injury. Definition and ethical considerations of death. In the last half of the last century, the development of safe and effective mechanical ventilation meant also that people could be kept alive who had no chance of surviving. And around the world, the concept of brain death 
limiting intensive care and stopping on people who are determined to be dead by accepted codes of practice with severe neurological injury became a norm. At the same time, the development of immunosuppression led to better transplant survival and the ability to improve the quality of life for other people with organ transplantation. Organs and beating heart donors certainly have been thought for many years to be the organs that are most likely to provide long-term effective survival following a transplant. Death criteria have been largely the same for 3,000 years. Cardiorespiratory criteria, although not known as such, were used. People in the 17th century were known to be dead because they didn't breathe, their hearts had stopped, and their pupils became fixed and dilated, and that's the mode of certification of death of most people on the planet. But in the last 50 years, the idea of neurological death or brain death has developed. This has largely been a medical advance to stop intensive care in those who have unsurvivable brain injury and basically has been largely accepted by states and countries around the world to equate to, to death. The concept of neurological death is that of cerebral edema and brainstem herniation. But let's pause. I'm talking about brain death, but what is death? It's a complex entity. Is an event or a process? There are certainly legal, societal and medical changes, so to reinvent something just on the ICU has caused some problems for philosophers and other people around the planet, but certainly there are major issues. So when I die, my children thankfully become someone else's responsibility, although they can have all my money, what's left of it. I prefer Epicurus, who tells us death is nothing, the idea that once you're dead, you're dead, there's no point worrying about it, and before you're dead, you're alive. But the ethics of this, death is inherently a complicated topic. The metaphysics of why a formerly alive person has become dead are complicated. The epistemology, what criteria tell us they have become dead, and the bedside test to diagnose it. Is it really sufficient to have a mirror to the nose and auscultation? Unsurprisingly, social, religious and personal understandings of death very considerably. A life and death so readily distinguished? Is the exact time of death certain? There's no medical textbook that tells you the time of death. If it's a process or an event, it's not clear. It's a philosophical question. The question of when death occurs is one for legal and governments rather than individual physicians. Certainly we have standards and criteria by which we can determine that death has occurred, but the actual time of death remains elusive. Certainly, in our world, at some point, critical care is merely prolonging the dying process. And if that's the case, in most places, ICU should be withdrawn. But one of the other key factors here is that brainstem death and brain death are very different throughout the world. The US, France will have whole brain death. In the UK, brainstem death. Two approaches underpin neurological death. The first is the irredeemable loss of consciousness if there's no functioning brainstem, especially for total brain death. There's an irredeemable loss of consciousness, a loss of the ability to interact with the environment. Though the person's heart beats, they seem biologically alive. They'll never live independently, be individual with a character, there's a loss of personhood, and they're never the same person they were. And these concepts have evolved into the idea of neurological death. The second concept was that of a loss of coordinated homeostasis. The brain being the central organiser of our bodies, if that's dead, that individual is no longer the centre of a coordinated homeostasis, but a loose association of organs. When brain death was first being determined, the idea was often that bodily death was an inevitable consequence of brain death um, within a few days. But actually now there are certainly cases in which women who have died 
and been certified by brain death, their bodies have been kept on ventilators and healthy fetuses delivered several weeks later. So that's interesting. Can you have chronic brain death? It's unsure which approach has been accepted in many countries in the world, but I think the key fact is that it has. The public has accepted this concept in most countries and all major religions, although there are some recent debates among Roman Catholic doctrinal uh, publications, uh, but all major religions largely accept this as a complex entity. What about the legal status of the dead? Well, in the UK, as I've mentioned, the medical determination of death, uh, the exact moment of death is unclear, but certainly you certify the death has occurred. There is no legal statutory definition of death. Um, you're largely dead when the doctor using standards of practice that are accepted says you are. Um, brain death has not been covered in the UK until a 1992 case when it was determined that it was appropriate for doctors to use that to determine death. And certainly in terms of organ donation, which we'll move on to now, for donation after cardiac death or circulatory death, DCD, which I'll define a bit more in detail later, um, the time after which the heart has stopped to when you can certify death is not a legal concept, it's a practical medical concept. One thing that's very clear when we come and talk about different ways of certifying death, there isn't brain death, there isn't circulatory death, there is one death, but doctors use different tests and different times to verify that it has occurred. So again, I'm going to be UK focused because that's where I work. Paediatric death processes in our country have changed after a couple of very high profile, complex cases with press involvement. The Marchioness was a boat that uh, crashed in the middle of London and lots of adolescent children died during that tragedy. Um, one of the tr difficult things is that the corpses, when they were pulled from the river, sometimes several weeks later, um, had their hands removed to get ID. And that was a standard process for coroners to occur at the time, to, to do at the time. But this got into the national press and became a huge scandal. And the families of press were appalled and the poor coroners were dragged over the coals. And I guess this is a useful example, and I'll come to another, the older Hay inquiry, the Royal Children. Liverpool Children's Inquiry uh, was a massive scandal in the UK where organs were trained from children that had died without explicit parents' consent. And the old paternalistic approach there was that why would doctors trouble parents with asking them when they could just be upset by it? And this was the way that congenital heart surgery advanced by looking at babies' hearts and trying to think through operations which could be done. And at the time in the UK, certainly there was no legal uh, concept that consent was required from families of children that had died to perform post-mortems and retain organs. And obviously, one of the key things there is that the law may well trail behind in both these examples what society considers ethical and appropriate. And that's a challenge for doctors and healthcare staff. Should we work inside the law? Well, that seems fairly clear, but there may be ethical frameworks we need to think about, ethical concepts that we also need to work within that may not be defined legally at the current time. Again, in Scotland, north of our border, uh, it's a separate country, fairly soon, I think. Um, Birkenhair, very famous for taking bodies, freshly uh, buried people from graves to let medical students learn anatomy, which is kind of an important thing. Um, but actually, there was no consent, no idea to actually ask any permission. And Birkenhair made an awful lot of money from this grave robbing. And that led largely to the Anatomy Act of 1832, when you could donate your body to medical science and the various legal changes there through the UK to enable tissue and organs to be used to help other people, from medical students learning about anatomy, to corneal grafting, transplantation of cataract tissue, and living donation have all proceeded legally. Organ donation in children. 
The modes of donation in childhood, there are two large ones we talk about, uh, largely determined by the way that the children have died. One is donation after brain death, DBD, and the second is donation after circulatory death, or DCD. Brain death is probably the more standardised approach to how things happen. Certainly in the UK, of the around 50 children who donate organs each year after dying, uh, brain death is certainly the more common mode of, of those children having died. Um, it's actually decreasing, perhaps due to road traffic accident improvements, perhaps also due to good ICU care, we'd like to think, with decompressive craniectomies. And the other thing that's kind of important for UK uh, practice is that we have odd national guidelines that don't allow brain death to be certified in, in babies under two months of age, which is very different from the United States and Europe and a bit of an anomaly we're looking to sort out. Um, donation after circulatory death occurs after standard cardiorespiratory certification of death. In most children who've donated this way, they're, they're generally after five years of age. And what happens here is intensive care support is withdrawn and these children actually are certified dead within a short period of time of the heart stopping, which has been quite controversial, around five minutes of time, and then the organs are rapidly harvested. The reason that's necessary is because the heart has stopped, the organs develop warm ischemia, and they can't be used for other people if there's a lot of damage to the organs. Whereas in donation after brain death, the child is certified dead, the heart of the body is still beating, the child is still on a mechanical ventilator, or their body is, and their body is taken down to theatre, still with active blood flow around the body and organs are harvested there. So there's no real uh, long period of warmer schema to the organs. Uh, one other aspect is that live related donations do occur, certainly in the United States, but in Europe there really are standards that mean that doesn't occur. Um, so is that fair? Why is it that a 16 year old can decide to donate a, a kidney in the United States to someone else or a 15 year old, whereas in the UK they certainly can't? Uh, there are ethical uh, controversies on either side of the Atlantic about that and no resolution in sight. Well, at the beginning we talked about who the paediatric organ donor is and one of the other things we have to be very clear about, they're not generally the people who are in our hospitals today. They tend to be people who are at home, who have a sudden traumatic brain injury, but often traumatic brain injury is a sudden event in a child who's very well and often the family will have had no real length of time to prepare themselves for their child's uh, sudden death. Inside Europe and the UK there's a lot of work being done looking to improve organ donation rates and perhaps one of the key bits that helped to improve that for us on the paediatric ICU was a national heart and uh, an old entity, national NHS, National Health Service Blood and Transplant Potential Donor Audit. And this is an audit of all deaths in all intensive cares in the UK uh, outside the cardiac ICU. And they looked at all people who died who were ever on mechanical ventilation and that was really an attempt to look at the potential donation in the population. Um, and then look at tail-offs in each step of that process where people who could have become organ donors didn't become organ donors and to look at why that was. Uh, I looked at the uh, data from 2006-07 in the UK and I think one of the key steps here is looking at the, the different hospitals that deliver intensive care to children in the UK. You can see the number of auditor mechanical deaths or deaths of children who are ever on mechanical ventilation, obviously varies by size of the unit, but there's a huge discrepancy in the ability of intensive care units to offer the potential of organ donation to families. Certainly there are a number of other reasons organ donation doesn't occur, whether in suitability of organs or, or different processes around death, 
but certainly the ability to offer this to families was very, very um, unequal at the time. And similarly with donation after circulatory death, which at the time was quite a rare event in the UK with only nine in a year, um, again, that was very, very different between different units. Controversies in organ donation. So I'm going to move on to some of the ethical controversies and perhaps the one that I really have to deal with is uh, this paper and the, the idea of uh, heart transplantation after declaration of cardiocirculatory death or DCD in very small babies. Uh, Bob Chirog did an excellent critique of brain death and the dead donor rule in a round table which is still available on the New England Journal website and I recommend you all to go and look at this paper, read it and think through some of the issues. Uh, the process here was withdrawal of uh, mechanical ventilatory support in babies who had severe brain injury uh, but didn't fulfil brain death criteria and, and a very uh, complex and well worked out ethical procedure for talking to the families, getting consent and talking to the recipient families and actually performing the first, for, since Barnard's time, uh, donation after circulatory death. So these children had uh, in mechanical ventilation withdrawn and very soon after that, their hearts were removed and transplanted into other babies who initially, the results were quite good. There's been some late fall off, I understand, in survival. Uh, but these were children who were really thought to have no chance of survival anyway. And the key ethical conundrum here is if you're withdrawing and declaring death by cardiocirculatory criteria, in those days it was certainly talked about as being a cardiac criteria in Europe, how can you restart the heart in someone else? I think people have moved along to think about this being the death of the circulation, uh, the cessation of the circulation in the individual and death being certified that way and death being a uniform state and organs being taken afterwards. But one of the key steps here was to remove or decrease the time after the asystole was uh, found to actually declare circulatory death down to 70 seconds in one case, which was extremely controversial. And as I understand, this process hasn't been replicated in any other centres around the world at present. There are other ethical issues in paediatric organ donation to talk about. I've mentioned the dead donor rule. Is it inviable? Um, is the, the concept that we should take organs from people as they're dying to give to other people? That's probably a step that most people would feel uh, for, for uh, personal, religious, other reasons, a step that shouldn't be taken. When you talk to philosophers and they look through rigorous ethical debate, it's probably not quite, quite as clear. Brain death, is it real? Does it matter? Um, and certainly the other ethical issues, the discrepancies, particularly for us, between different ICUs in the UK, which we've largely addressed by having um, one clinician in every paediatric ICU whose responsibility it is to ensure that organ donation practices are kept uh, at the forefront of ICU and have standardised protocols uh, for donation, uh, and also discrepancies between different countries. The DCD stuff, very important to mention uh, that there are certain a group of clinicians in the US who are very, very opposed to DCD as a concept. And I think most of their objections, and if I undersell this, I, I don't mean to, but their objections are that uh, these people possibly aren't dead. How do we know the time of death? And as I said to you before, doctors don't know the time of death. We simply have the ability to certify death using standardized criteria. And the certain time element here is novel in terms of organ donation. I'm not aware of any other area in medicine where we actually have a necessity of giving a time at which we certify death after the examination has been done. 
In the UK, my own country, we have some other ethical issues. One is about the duty of the care to the child rather than providing organs. There was uh, largely changing now, but a feeling that as an intensivist, my job is to look after the child in front of me. I can't have some abstract feeling that I'm actually bothered about whether this child donates organs because the other people who receive them are not my patient. I think largely that's been uh, largely sorted out in many centres, but around the world you still hear that being discussed in, in many places, that actually my duty is to this child rather than any other child who may receive this child's organs. I personally think the way through that is to think about this being a gift that this child is giving to other children, but your absolute prime duty is to care effectively and compassionately for the dying child and nothing can get in the way of that and I certainly agree with that. Infant neurological death for us, it seems an anomaly that we have the, not have the ability to uh, certify children under two months of age uh, as, as having died by using neurological criteria and that leads to decreased organ transplantation in very small children in the UK. Anacophallic donation, looking at organ donation from babies that are born with severe malformations of the brain um, is something that's occurred over the world in, in sporadic periods, particularly in the US and uh, certain other countries in very small numbers um, and has largely been decided not to be ethically appropriate, but I'll come back to that. Cardiac DCD, we've had a very nice meeting in the UK looking at whether that's something we could take on. I think the feeling is that's something that ethically we don't have an objection to, but some of the practical aspects are yet to be determined and sorted out. And there are a whole heap of other things we're looking at. One of the things that's really troubling adult intensivists is the limitation that's ethically acceptable on, on anti-mortem interventions that might improve the donated organ state that can be done to someone before they've died. And one of the key ones here is the anti-mortem administration of heparin to a dying patient. Uh, could that cause them harm versus would that make the gift of organs from them work better in someone else for the future? We had legal guidance from the UK Department of Health that suggested that was probably against UK law, um, although that was never tested in court. And there are certainly further questions of lawyers trying to work out whether that truly is an illegal concept or whether that may be ethically justifiable and therefore legally there could be questions to change that. Um, consent in paediatric donation is another issue we're exploring at present. The key thing, of course, is to stop children dying. And obviously on the ICU, we'd like to survive, get everyone to survive who comes under our care. We have to realise that doesn't always happen. And if we have the ability to improve life for others, we should take it. Actually, neonatal donation, we are doing quite a bit of work. And at present, one of the key things to elucidate was what the yield of organs from babies that die may be. And certainly our, our transplant teams think heart, liver, whole organ and hepatocytes are all viable, as is possibly small bowel. And we're just moving now, having uh, had a plan to think through DCD in neonates, that adults may be able to receive kidneys on block from a neonatal donor. So uh, certainly brain death itself is going to take some work in the UK and looking at under two month uh, infants donating, but DCD can possibly yield some organs for, for people who may require them. Anencephalic donation, so anencephalic babies are very rare. They're often picked up antenatally and often lead to termination of pregnancy. But if the pregnancy continues, sometimes for religious, sometimes for other reasons, parents often approach uh, their teams looking after them during their pregnancy and wonder whether organ donation may be possible. And that certainly happens two or three times a year in the UK. The standard answer has always been no. Uh, there's a very nice bit of work done in Canada looking through the ethics of this process. And certainly I think nowhere in the world would feel confident or comfortable declaring death by uh, neurological criteria in these babies. 
but actually there may be the possibility of uh, donation after circulatory death and there's a number of cases in the UK currently being carried to term by mothers who would like to take that approach uh, and so that's kind of watch this space. It may be something that may be technically able to happen. There have been large ethical debates about that and I think most people feel that may be possible. The future organ transplantation in children. Well, we've been waiting for xenotransplantation for many years. There's the baby with the, uh, the baboon heart, uh, legendarily done in the US. But actually since then, this hasn't proved to be a very fertile area for pediatric transplantation and adult transplantation. There don't seem to be any ongoing clinical trials uh, present in, in, in people. Uh, permanent artificial hearts may well be there in the future. Other organ support may be able to come artificially sustained for longer periods of time. So, organisational change is probably the key thing to improve organ uh, donation rates, and we've certainly managed that in the UK. We've now got the uh, highest rates of donation we've ever had after a, a rather large task force was set up to nationally improve organ donation rates and actually invested in the process in the UK. Part of that uh, group I'm involved with is a National UK Donation Ethics Committee, uh, and that, that group serves, uh, it has uh, lay members, philosophers, ethicists, lawyers, and clinicians, intensivists like myself, to look through ethical issues that are troubling clinicians and people feel may be complicating organ donation. That group doesn't have a remit to increase organ donation. In fact, some of the thoughts have actually probably effectively decreased organ donation, but it enables an ethical uh, a path to be worked out for clinicians who are dealing with this very difficult area. Um, up to now, that group have had consensus meetings and reports looking at legal guidance for coroners, research in organ donation, ethical guidance to DCD, uh, senior nurse in organ donation care and anti-mortem inotropes, and a number of other things will be upcoming, not least paediatric donation issues, which are a focus for this year. Some of the specific inquiries that have been, been raised, which I think might be interesting for people, um, very different practices in adult versus paediatric end-of-life care. Um, it may well be different around the world, but certainly in the UK, a terminal wean of child, children is very, very unusual. In adult practices, it's very common to take the ventilation rate down to five and wait for the heart to stop. That would certainly not be a common practice in the paediatric units in the UK. Um, there's also been some concerns around the world that adult patients who are actually having intensive care withdrawn, uh, people have been holding back from giving them adequate sedation and analgesia because the doctors are concerned that, that may be leading to an uh, that their death. Uh, and that's something that had to be nailed very hard that providing adequate sedation and analgesia is a prime action and you shouldn't be worried about whether the patient breathes a little bit less uh, or for a little bit less of a time. And the key message there is you're not hastening death by doing that, you're providing comfort. Um, other aspects have been who reintubates a, a, a body after withdrawal to facilitate lung DCD. Do anaesthetists feel comfortable going back to someone who was their patient and putting the tube back in and inflating the lungs, or should that be provided by the retrieval team? A few thoughts to the future, a complex topic, and that brings to the end my video presentation. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.